Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Well, uh, Rachel Truesdale went to glory earlier this week, and I thought it would be good for us to get God's perspective, the eternal perspective about Rachel, and also about the other hard things that we have to deal with in this fading life. 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a very corrupt city, a very wicked, a very evil city, and it was a great opportunity for the church of Corinth to be a bright light in a very dark place, to have a godly influence on that wicked city, to stand up, to stand out, and to hold forth the word of truth in the midst of a very crooked and perverse generation, and that's always the call for the people of God. However, what we find is that the exact opposite happened in Corinth. And instead of the church impacting the city with the good news of Christ, the city impacted the church with its sin and compromise and ungodliness. And sad to say, the church became like the world. Sin quickly entered into the church. False teachers entered into the church. And soon, The church was turning, not only on Paul who had started it, but also on God. And it was a very ugly and a very sad scene indeed. They spread lies about Paul. They turned against Paul. And it seemed that the more Paul fought for them, the more they rejected him. However, after much persistence, agony, and prayer, and after a very severe letter written by Paul that knocked some spiritual sense into these straying Christians... Praise the Lord, a majority of them repented of their sinful rebellion. Praise the Lord. And it wasn't long after receiving this great news of their repentance that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. He wrote this letter to continue to defend his apostleship, which was still under attack, to confront the false teachers who were still in the church, and then to give some general exhortations and encouragements to these fragile believers. Chapters 4 and 5 give a good look into the heart of Paul, that great man of God. And there we find that Paul never lost heart, even though from a worldly perspective, he should have lost heart. Why not? Why didn't he lose heart? Because he knew that he had (coughs) heaven to look forward to, because he had the eternal weight of glory awaiting him, because he had a ministry to pursue and a great God to glorify And it's in light of all that that Paul never lost heart. And he's a great example for all of us here this morning. Paul continues with this line of thought in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us a spirit as a guarantee. So we're always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. <clears throat> now here, Paul is giving great assurance about the believer's future reality. Great, great assurance. 
And he's telling us why we in Christ don't lose heart. Why we don't ever shrink back from pleasing and from serving our amazing God. Why we don't surrender to Satan's temptations to compromise. Why we don't ever, not ever, despair. Why not, Paul? Why not? Here's why. Because the one thing we know is this. That we in Christ, we have a building from God. And that's a reason to be encouraged today. We know that if our earthly house, (coughs) this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, the earthly house, the tent that Paul's talking about, is a metaphor for our physical bodies. And look, if this earthly house is destroyed as Christians, if we die, hey, something much better is waiting us, see? So we don't lose heart. By all means, we don't lose heart because this reality changes everything. Notice that Paul describes our earthly house, our physical bodies, as a tent. Now, why does he do that? Well, Paul was a tent maker, right? And he understood that tents are very temporary dwelling places. They get put up for a while and then they get taken down. Like the temporary tabernacle in the Old Testament that was taken down and put back up every time the Israelites moved along in the wilderness. Tents aren't permanent homes. Not at all. But rather, tents are short-term shelters. When you go camping, you (coughs) put up a tent to sleep in, and after a day or a few days, the tent comes down because tents are just temporary. And like a tent, so is this physical body of ours. So is the fleeting life of ours. I mean, life is short. The hands of time are always moving. And death is imminent, an imminent reality for every single one of us. And soon, these bodies, these physical bodies of ours are going to be reduced to dust. As Spurgeon said, you're chained to the chariot of rolling time and you're constantly in motion. We all know that. Another said, we're all like trees marked for the axe and the appointed hour is quickly at hand. And the axe will soon come to every one of us. I've heard it said, when as a child I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth I dreamed and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. And later, as I older grew, time flew. Soon I shall find, while traveling on, time gone. And we all know that, that life flies by and soon we're all going to be called home. And like a tent, we're going to be folded up and we're going to be gone from this earth. And that's true for all of us. And none of us really knows when that time is going to come. So Paul says, if this tent is destroyed, and it's going to be, it will be. If death comes to our physical bodies, and it most definitely will come, unless he comes first, of course, but most likely, well, I don't know anymore, but... We're going to die, but we have a building from God. And that's good news. So Paul says, please don't lose heart, but stay focused on what God calls you to do and what God calls you to be until He calls you home to glory. Now look, a building here stands opposed to a tent. And while a tent is temporary, a building on the other hand is is, uh, permanent. It's lasting, it's solid, it's fixed, and it's secure. And the good news is that the building that Paul is referring to, the house not made with hands that's eternal in the heavens, is our glorified, heavenly, resurrected bodies that will soon be our eternal reality as believers. Note that Paul says we have this. 
we have it, not in the sense of having it right now presently, but of having it for certain. Having it as a promise that we can be sure of. See, someday we will shed this tent of ours and get something that is fit for eternity as a glorified body. And the implications of this truth are absolutely remarkable. Death will come, yes, but what lies ahead for us in Christ far outweighs what we've experienced here. And in regards to our current physical bodies, man, there's just no comparison. No comparison. See, what we have waiting... Uh, what we have now is like a flimsy tent compared to what we have waiting, that solid building. I mean, look, our bodies here are temporary indeed. Anybody? I mean, temporary. They can maybe get us through 80, 90 years, and for others, much less time. And then they fail us. They age. They become fragile. They begin to ache. They break down. But hey, that's okay because they're only temporary dwelling places for our eternal souls. And the good news is that in the future, after death, we will then be clothed with a body that shall have God for its immediate author and that will then be fitted to dwell in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. See, we will then be clothed with a body that will never be taken down or dissolved by death. No, it will be eternal. It will be fitted perfectly for heaven forever. And it will never be subject to a world of sin, a world of suffering, or a world of death. No, that's for here, not there. See, one man said, The righteous are put into their graves all weary and worn. But as such, they will not rise. They go there with the furrowed brow, the hollowed cheek, the wrinkled skin, but they shall wake in beauty and glory. What a thought. And what a reality for us in Christ. Be encouraged today. See, death is gain for us in Christ. Eternal glory awaits us in Christ. And this is all just temporary anyhow. But look, the reality is soon to come. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two through 44, if you will. 1 Corinthians 15... 42 through 44. You all know where that is, right? Because we're in 2 Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians, all right. In this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about resurrection, both of Christ and of the Christian. And just as Christ rose from the dead and received a resurrected body, guess what? So too will we as believers. And this is so, so good. Look, in verse 42, we get a glimpse of what our resurrected bodies that we're going to receive in the future will be like. Verse 42 says this, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. You see the contrast going on there? Look, as opposed to the temporary tent that we all dwell in right now, corruption, dishonor, weakness, natural, none of that's really good. 
guess what? Someday we will receive that permanent building, incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual, and all that is very good, and the difference is stark, that soon we will receive a permanent body from God, which means no more sickness and no more death, no more shame because of sin, no more frailty in temptations, and no more limits like we have to face today. The point, we have every reason to not lose heart as Christians, even though our earthly tent is being being destroyed so we die yes but something better is waiting something much much better and new bodies are just a small part of it but a good part of it see we're living in the temporary the things which are seen are temporary the things which are not seen are eternal and we need to remember that even if you're getting old and even if you're feeling bad and even if your body's breaking down even if you're suffering even if you die You as a Christian have every reason to be encouraged today because of what you have waiting. So please, look to that which is eternal and live with all your might here for the glory of God while you still have time left here. Because soon, guess what? Soon we'll be home. The second fact that we see from this passage is that we groan. Anyone? Ah! Come on. Anybody? groan. And look, Paul has two reasons why we groan. First, we groan because of desire. And that's just the reality. Verse 2, in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. So until we move on, until we arrive home, we groan. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? The word for groan emphasizes the Christian's intense longing for home. It means to sigh often, to sigh deeply, to moan, or to bewail within oneself. In Jeremiah 4.31, this word describes the groaning of a woman in childbirth. It's been used to describe the groanings of someone who's lost a loved one. And it's also the kind of groaning that Job experienced when he was in the midst of his intense physical suffering. So this is more than just a a sighing. No, this is an intense groaning and and moaning that wells up from deep within you. See, anyone here know this? I mean, that the closer you get to home, the closer you get to glory, the greater the longing for home grows within you. Anybody? Come on, right? It intensifies, see? It, It gets momentum. I understand that. I understand that. I love this life. I do. But I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to be with my beloved Lord. Because there's no comparison. Now please note that this doesn't mean that Paul and us in Christ should sit around and groan all day complaining about life. Not at all. It doesn't mean that we're always sad and mournful and dejected and that we grumble all the day long. No way. But here, Paul is simply describing our intense longing for home, for him, and for that which is much, much better. And while we're content to serve the Lord here, we can and we should look ahead with intense longing for what's waiting for us in Christ. I mean, while we are joyful because we have Christ, and we should be, joy is indeed a fruit of the Spirit, we can also yearn for what the amazing future holds for us. And shouldn't it be that way? Come on. It should. It should. I mean, if we're not excited about heaven, if we're not excited about what's waiting for us in Christ, 
If we're not longing for it, groaning for it, something's wrong. We have lost perspective. Look, Revelation 21.4, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no pain, for the former things have passed away. And that reality should get us really, really, really super duper excited. Fanny Crosby wrote, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates to the city in a robe of spotless white, He will lead me where no tear will ever fall. In the glad song of ages I shall mingle with delight. But I long to meet my Savior most of all. Come on. It's true. How glorious that will be when we finally see Him, our beloved Lord who died for us, when we finally see Him face to face. Is that your longing today? Because it should be. We ought to be eagerly looking forward to the day when our vision will be enlightened by the glory of His awesome presence. Come on, heaven truly is a place more wonderful than we could ever begin to think or imagine. And we ought to long for it, of course. Heaven is a place of joy and beauty, of peace and happiness that will never end, not ever. It's a place of eternal joy where there will be no sin or suffering, no sorrow or pain. It's a place where there will be no quarrels or disagreements, no disappointments, and no weeping. And in heaven, we will know perfect joy forever. And everything that now makes us groan will finally be done away with, and we will find ourselves in the very presence of God where the purest and truest kind of joy is possible. There, His love will engulf us forever. Eternal joy, eternal bliss, eternal peace will be ours forever and we will be with our beloved. And that should create some longing in us, I think. Anybody? Right? One pastor said, blessed be God. There'll be no sorrows in heaven. There shall not be one single tear shed within the courts above. There shall be no more disease and weakness and decay. The coffin and the funeral and the grave and the dark black mourning shall be things unknown. Our faces shall no more be pale and sad. No more shall we go out from the company of those who we love and be parted asunder. The word farewell shall never be heard again. There shall be no anxious thought about tomorrow, tomorrow and spoil our enjoyments. No sharp and cutting words to wound our souls. (coughs) Our wants will have come to a perpetual end and all around us shall be joy and love. And again, that reality should get us excited today. Paul was. Paul was very excited. Thus he groaned for it, right? He longed for it. He hungered for it. He thirsted for it. That said... That longing didn't stop him from giving his all to God while he remained here, but it did indeed spur him on to godly action until he arrived, see. So like Paul, we groan until glory, and we groan until we arrive, or at least we should. We understand Christian's longing in Pilgrim's Progress when he said, quoting from Song of Solomon, if you see my beloved Lord before I do, tell him I'm homesick. And that... We should all be homesick today. Why? Because what lies ahead for us in Christ is truly amazing and incredible and indescribable and beyond comparison. 
comprehension and comparison. I love the faith of the patriarchs of old. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says about them in Hebrews eleven, thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. That word embraced is very interesting. It means to greet, to welcome, and to salute. The picture is of people on a ship passing a land that they can see on the horizon and waving a greeting to that land. They see it, right? They know it's there and they welcome it warmly. And that's the picture of how the patriarchs treated the future promises of God. I mean, soon the greeting will turn to an embrace, but not yet, see, not yet. But that's okay because they know that they will soon embrace. The same is true with us in Christ. Heaven is on the horizon for us who believe. The full promises of God lie ahead. And so right now, we look ahead, eagerly, expectantly, waving until we get to embrace, until we finally reach the land where all the promises of God will be fulfilled, where the incredible inheritance will be received, the incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Ours. That's going to be ours Glory in all its fullness, ours. Him, ours. Joy unspeakable forever, ours. We wave to it now, but we know that we will soon embrace it. Guess what? Rachel's embracing it. But for us still here, look, we soon will be clothed with our habitation from heaven. Soon we'll no longer be found naked. Soon we'll be transformed. Soon we'll get resurrected bodies fit for heaven. And soon we will arrive soon. But until then, ah, we groan. Rachel's no longer groaning. I'm very happy for her. I remember when I was a kid on Christmas Eve, how I couldn't sleep because of the excitement of the next day. That's how we should feel as Christians about what lies ahead for us, but way, 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 way more, right? I mean, come on. It's okay to groan so long as it spurs you on to godly action while you are still here. So we first groan because of desire, heaven, him, but we also groan because of our burdens, anyone? Right? And this is just the reality on planet earth. Life is good. Life is very good, but life is hard and painful, and sin is here, and death is coming for us all, and that causes us to groan. Hey, heaven is later. Not yet. So, groan. Verse 4, we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. The word burdened here literally means to be weighed down, to be heavy, and to be overcome. And as Christians, we often feel this way, do we not? Burdened. Don't you ever just get angry (laughs) with the burdens and weights of this fading life? Is it just me? Yeah, come on. We have worries. We have fears. We have daily battles to fight. We have temptation that's constantly, relentlessly pursuing us. We have frustrations. We have trials. We have financial trials. We have physical trials. We have spiritual trials. Yeah, the burdens are there, and that's a guarantee this side of glory. Paul felt that way. He says so. 
And like us, but probably even more so, Paul was weary of all the frustrations and disappointments and limitations and weaknesses and sins of this present life. John Calvin says that the groaning of believers arises because they know that they are here in a state of exile from their native land. And they know that they are here shut up in a body as in a prison. Hence, they feel this life to be a burden. And he's absolutely right. And it's frustrating. And it's burdensome. Not just the daily frustrations from being a human, but the frustrations from being a Christian who desperately, desperately desires to glorify God. And there truly are added frustrations for us in Christ. Hope you know what I mean. I mean, we want to be holy. We want to be free from the flesh. We want to be done with the battles against temptation daily. We want to be released from this body of sin. I don't really know one Christian who doesn't feel like groaning over his spiritual condition. Why? Because we long to be holy for the glory of God and we're not there yet. We're not perfectly sanctified yet. So we groan because we hate sin and yet we still sin. Makes you want to pull your hair out. Or just groan, along with Paul. We just want to be free. Rachel's free. We just can hardly wait for this mortality, which is our reality, to be swallowed up by real life. Which comes in our earthly death, which is our best day. That word swallowed up means to drink down, to consume, and to devour. And that's what will happen to our mortality, our humanity. It will be consumed by life, life, eternal life. And we're ready for it. I can't wait, you know. But not yet. Man, not yet. Until then, keep struggling for the glory of God. Keep fighting with holy fervor. Keep pressing on with unction and zeal. Keep battling for God. So while we groan, we don't let this feeling overtake us, right? I mean, we still have the joy of the Lord. We still have peace, the peace of God. We still have much to, to look forward to. We have a ministry to continue to pursue. We have a God to continue to, to, to glorify. And while we're burdened, We press on for the glory of God until our homecoming day arrives. Life is hard at times, but eternity is soon going to be our reality. The battles that we face aren't always pleasant, but soon they're going to be gone forever. Our failings to be truly holy men and women of God are, are hard for us because we desire to please God so very much, but soon we will be glorified. Or as Paul puts it, this mortality will be swallowed up by life. So we groan because of our desire for heaven and because of all our burdens. But they don't hold us down. No, they they spur us on. Because soon we're going to be free. Soon we'll be home. Soon this will all be over with. Eternal glory. But we understand Paul here, don't we? Ah! Groan! We understand. Well... Paul doesn't want to be too depressing here, so he reminds the Corinthian Christians and us of two wonderful truths that we can rejoice in while we are here. First, we can rejoice in the fact that we have a guarantee while we are here living out our faith, the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a, what? Guarantee. Isn't that amazing? 
A guarantee. In other words, God has backed up the promise of heaven and everything else that we've been looking at with a down payment for every true believer, the Holy Spirit. That's remarkable. God has given His Holy Spirit to everyone who has truly turned to Christ in repentant faith for forgiveness and life, and He doesn't take this lightly. And if God guarantees something, then guess what? You can bank on it. And if you're here, and if you're saved, if you have the Holy Spirit, which all true Christians do have indwelling them, then listen, God has guaranteed that you will receive the eternal life that He has promised to you. That's what it says. If you're a Christian, truly a Christian, then God has given you His Spirit, Himself, God the Spirit, who lives in you as a guarantee of what lies ahead for you, heaven. So don't lose heart, not at all. That word guarantee describes a pledge or a partial payment that gave the one receiving the guarantee a legal claim to the goods in question. In this case, eternal glory in heaven for us in Christ. In the modern Greek language, this word for guarantee means engagement ring. The good news is that God never, ever, ever breaks off the engagement, not ever. And when he makes a promise, this awesome God of ours who cannot lie, his promise is sure. His promise is certain. And the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our future eternal glory. Second Corinthians one twenty two. God has sealed us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a Guarantee. Ephesians 1.13, after having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And this is real, true assurance going on here. That when we became saved and the Holy Spirit came and resided in us, which is true of every believer, we were sealed until the day of our eternal redemption. You can't get any more secure than that. Biblically, for Christians today, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you the minute that you become saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And He will not only help you and convict you and empower you, but He will also make sure, make certain that you arrive safely home. Thank you, Lord. What a promise. But here's the point. Groan, yeah, but be greatly encouraged at the same time. Because as a Christian, what you have waiting for you is as sure as sure can be. And knowing that can give us a great boost to endure the rest of the way, to persevere with great conviction until you arrive, to keep going through whatever stumbling blocks are put in your path, for the future is certain for us in Christ. See, here's a fact. Rachel is in heaven. Fact. Right? I mean fact she believes she loved her lord and god took her home and she's with him right now that is a a fact because god guaranteed that for her how comforting notice that at the beginning of the verse paul says he who has prepared us for this very thing is god what does that mean He's saying that as a Christian, God has indeed chosen you in Him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. He's given you His Spirit as a down payment, and heaven is your assurance because He's prepared us for this very thing. So, be encouraged. Heaven is waiting for you if you're a Christian. Fact. Until then, live for Him. How are you doing? Look, your sin banishes you from heaven and condemns you to hell. 
But Jesus came to pay the wages of sin for all who will believe on Him for forgiveness and life. He suffered so all who believe can live and be saved and be forgiven of all their sin. He took our wages upon Himself and paid our wages in full so we could receive mercy, grace, and love. And He's so amazing. And look, for those who sincerely believe on Christ as Lord and Savior, He then gives us His Spirit who comes and lives in you as your helper and as your guarantee of what lie ahead. You then go on and live for His glory and you join in the struggle against sin and for the glory of God, compelled by love, and then soon, someday in the future, heaven. What an amazing thought. And that's the next fact that we can rejoice in along with Paul, that we have confidence today as Christians, this, heaven is our reality. Done. So instead of living in fear and endless groanings that lead to depression, we in Christ have great joy and we have great confidence regarding the future. Great confidence, sure confidence, expectant confidence, verse 6. We're always confident. Knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. And then look at verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. So the presence of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life gave him confidence. And this is a confidence that every Christian has or should have because it's a truth found in the Word of God. The word confidence means to have courage, to be bold. To not be afraid. And because of what we have in Christ, we too can be confident today. Look at this. When we die, we go immediately into the presence of the Lord. Anybody encouraged by that? That's what it says. There's no such thing as soul sleep. There's no such thing as purgatory. No, but Paul here fully expected to go as soon as he died directly and immediately home into the awesome presence of his good God. Now think about that. Heaven is precious to us for many reasons. I mean, we want to be with loved ones who've passed on before us and whom we miss so dearly. Anybody? Right? That's, that's, that's awesome. We want to be with the great men and women of God who have passed on before us in centuries past. How cool will that be? We want to go to our heavenly home and experience all the amazing glories and wonders that are there for us, our incredible eternal inheritance. Yeah, however... <coughs> None of those things, as precious as they are, make heaven really heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the unhindered, unrestricted presence of our amazing God. Think about that. He makes all the difference. We, there, we will see Him, our beloved Lord who died to make us His. Love will overcome us and constant joy in His presence will be fully realized. Him unhindered forever. What an incredible thought. And we can be confident in this reality because it's a promise from God Himself. In light of this, Paul was patient in his trials and diligent in his calling. He was full of hope and of the confident expectation of heaven. And this filled him with cheerfulness. It filled him with joy, even in the midst of some real groanings along the way. One said, the hope of heaven surpasses all that, and it will enable a man to face danger with courage, to endure toil with patience, and to submit to trials in any form with cheerfulness. 
See, for us, death is ultimate gain. What's there really to fear in this life then? What? We can have true confidence today. We can have great courage, great joy, great boldness because we in Christ know what's waiting. And for us, when we're absent from this body, when we die, what? The presence of the Lord. Seeing His face. Being with Him forever. Ultimate glory and joy unspeakable will be ours forever. May we never, ever lose sight of Him. May we never, ever lose sight of what lies ahead. Look what Paul wrote in the previous chapter in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, <coughs> yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. How comforting is that? That's just the previous chapter. We never lose heart as Christians because our God turns everything around for us. Look, we don't lose heart because while the outer man is perishing, the inner, inner man is being renewed. <clears throat> the inner man that Paul's talking about here is the heart of the person, the soul of the person that, that <clears throat> lives forever, the new creation that belongs to God. And here, Paul tells us that as believers, we know that the reality of who we truly are isn't what's seen on the outside, praise the Lord for that, it's what's on the inside, what's in our hearts, how we're doing in our relationship with the Lord. And even though the inner man, uh, the outer man is wasting away, on the inside, we are constantly being made new by God. We're being changed daily by God. We're growing stronger in Christ. And that's not just temporary, but that is eternal. And what really matters here? We can praise God then that every day we can continue growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Christ. And that should cause us to be joyful because that lasts forever. See, that has eternal value. That, that pleases God. Hey, God doesn't care about how old you are, how young you are, what you look like, what color your hair is, how much hair you have, how many wrinkles you have. No, no, no. God cares about your relationship with Him, how you're doing spiritually. Are you saved? How you're growing and maturing in Christ and how you're doing in the spiritual race at hand because that's what really matters and that's what really lasts. Second from the previous chapter. We don't lose heart because while the physical suffering is burdensome, eternal glory awaits. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Verse 17 of chapter 4. It's very interesting because notice that Paul calls his trials light affliction. Light affliction. And yet, we know that Paul went through the ringer when it came to his trials and hardships and pains and sufferings in his life. But still he calls them light afflictions, insignificant, easy to bear (coughs) afflictions in view of eternity. Why? Because he says they're working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, all the afflictions of this life can't remotely compare to what lies ahead. And if you were to weigh all the pains and all the trials that you have to endure this side of heaven, they are insignificant compared to the glories that we in Christ will experience in eternity. Paul's telling us here that there's no comparison. 
He can't emphasize enough how much the glories of heaven outweigh the trials of this life. He can't exaggerate or overstate this reality too much. How much the weight of glory that awaits believers exceeds exceeds all limits, is beyond human comprehension, is heavier than heavy compared to the light and momentary afflictions that we have to face in this life. Now here, Paul isn't in any way minimizing the pain that we go through as human beings, and more specifically as believers. Instead, what he's doing is he's exalting the glory that lies ahead for us. Here, Paul shows us that the troubles of our lives are light in weight and they are momentary in duration, while the glories of what lies ahead is heavy in weight and eternal in duration. And that's important to remember, especially when there's been great suffering and when there's great pain involved. This is all going to be swallowed up in glory, see. J.C. Ryle says it well when he says, let's settle it then in our minds, for one thing, that the future happiness of those who are saved is eternal. However little we may understand it, it's something that will have no end. It will never cease, never grow old, never decay, and never die. God will fill us with joy in his presence, with eternal pleasure at his right hand. Once they arrive in paradise, the saints of God will never, ever leave that wonderful place. Their inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade. They will receive the crown of glory that will never, ever fade away. Their warfare is finished. Their fight is over. Their work is done. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. They're traveling on towards an eternal glory that far outweighs all their struggles, toward a home which will never be broken up, a meeting without parting, a family gathering without separation, a day without night. Faith will be swallowed up in sight and hope in certainty. They will see as they have been seen and know as they have been known and they will be with their Lord forever. Amen to that. And I'm not surprised that the Apostle Paul adds, encourage each other with these words. Encourage indeed. Third from that passage in chapter 4. We don't lose heart because what we see is temporary, but what's not seen is eternal. Basically, Paul's saying this. We don't lose heart because these physical, earthly things don't really matter. It's the things that are not seen. Living for God, honoring God, serving God, sharing Him with others, fighting the sin, pursuing godliness, serving people for the glory of God. Things like that are the things that last forever. So your body's wasting away. So you're facing trials and hardships in this life. Don't lose heart because those things don't matter. And those things don't compare to what lies ahead. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the rest of this stuff is is just fading and fleeting. Rachel loved her Lord and Savior very much, and he welcomed her home on Monday. And now she's experiencing the eternal weight of glory herself. What comfort! What hope! She's lost in wonder, love, and praise right now. So look, even though we groan, we have the confidence that heaven's waiting for us, and that helps us along the way. not fearing death, not shrinking back, not giving way to mediocrity, not napping on this journey home. But until we arrive, 
Paul gives us this great truth to remember this, that we walk by faith and not by sight, verse 7. Soon we will walk by sight, but until that time we walk by faith. And our call is to stay focused and to trust the Lord through it all. See, right now for us, the manifest presence of God is a matter of faith. We are at home in the body, so there's a sense in which we are absent from the Lord, at least in the sense of His immediate glorious presence. So now, (coughs) we must walk by faith and not by mere sight. That's not always easy. I mean, the one we live for and serve and love and are willing to die for is the one that we have never physically seen. Right? I mean, we see His work, yes. We see His blessing, yes. We see His creation and everything else, yes. But for now... He's in the spiritual realm which is unseen by us. Yet we love Him, and we live for Him, and we know that He's alive and real. Anybody? Right? We know it, but we see Him with spiritual eyes for now. And no, this isn't blind faith. This isn't a grasping for the wind kind of faith. But this is a faith based on truth that we are certain of and that we will die for, but it's still faith. We are living for that which is still unseen with physical eyes. We're living primarily with a confident expectation on things that are to come. That's much different than this world that lives for the things which are seen. Those things which are merely physical. Those things which are temporary. It's much, much different. No, for us, we walk by living and confident faith until we are called home to glory. For now, we live by faith. We have to, right? Because we don't always understand the ways of God. Anybody? We say, Lord, why? Why did Rachel have to go at so young of an age? We don't understand, Lord. But while we don't understand all these things, guess what? God knows. And God not only saved Rachel's soul, but He loved her way more than any of us ever could. And in his providential good grace, he took her to glory quicker than we would have liked, but we can trust our good God with that. And how amazing will it be when one day in the future, we might be able to look back and see the full plan from God's perfect perspective regarding this. How about this? Numerous souls saved because of it. God glorified in ways that we could have never, ever imagined. God only knows. But his ways are right. His ways are best. And we are called to trust Him with it. Hey, God is good even when we don't understand all His ways. And heaven is far, far better than being here. And we in Christ will see Rachel again. Until our times comes, faith in the God who loves us and the God who is right and good and the God who died to save us and the God who promises an eternal weight of glory for us. So what do I do until I get home and walk by sight? I seek to glorify my good God with the time I have left. The time is short. Living for the things that truly matter, the things that truly last, so I I remain faithful in all my trials and I continue fighting compromise and I continue striving against sin. I continue battling against the world's strong poles and I keep my eyes on Christ and I keep getting up every time I fall down. I, I keep living for eternity, living by faith, refusing to lose heart in this very disheartening place because I know, I know, I know Him! And I know what lies ahead. We can be confident today. Heaven is our home. Glory in God's presence is waiting for us when we arrive at our homecoming. Oh, what a day. Be still, my soul. 
the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forget, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so very much and we thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for saving undeserving sinners like us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. I pray that we would indeed have perspective for ourselves and in the midst of these circumstances today. May we look ahead. May we trust you. May we cling to you. And may we comfort one another with these amazing words of truth. Thank you for your peace and comfort. Thank you for turning all this around. Thank you for heaven. Thank you for saving our undeserving souls. We love you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.